Thank you so much. It's so nice to be with you. Uh, Here in Peaceborough, I'm here with Sammy, my wife, and we've been really looking forward uh, to coming uh, because um, you really are one of the great stories. Uh, What God is doing with this church as you multiply into, you know, four different cities and uh, the growth you're seeing is one of the great uh, encouragements to us in the nation right now. So I've been wanting to come for ages. And then when Dave said, would you come and help us celebrate our 30th birthday? I got excited. And when he said, and we're going to do it with 30 days of prayer, I got really uh, excited. So I'm here to say happy birthday uh, to you, Kingsgate. And uh, well done. Good job. What an amazing uh, story you are part of. If you're new here, if you're just touching down, checking out this church, checking out these people, these are good people. This is a great uh, place and uh, you can trust them. And what we see is that the church of Jesus Christ is growing because the gospel is still relevant, because Jesus is good news for every man and woman, every boy and girl in the nation. He changes individuals, families, communities and nations. You can't understand the culture of this nation if you don't fully understand the gospel of Jesus, because at the heart of our laws, the heart of our history, the heart of our the, the whole way our government is established, the heart of the way that society works is the integrity, the values, the truth, the story of Jesus Christ. He's good news for the future and not just the past. And so, you know, I'm very glad that at a time where the media is trying to write off the church, uh, you know, Jesus didn't get the memo. Jesus is building his church and actually everywhere I go in the nation, I see uh, churches growing. And I, I, we, we um, in our church in Guildford a few weeks ago, I, um, you know, I, I shared the, the gospel. And I invited people to become followers of Jesus. And, and as I often do, I think you do it a little bit differently here, but I invite people to close their eyes, raise their hand if they want to become a follower of Jesus. And afterwards, our 17-year-old son said to me, Dad, how many people put their hands up? And I said, only two. And he said, Dad... There is not only two. Every person counts. And, and, then he, and I, I was chastised. And then he said, when did you last preach the gospel? And no one became a Christian. I said, I can't remember when that last happened. Because I find whenever you share the good news that Jesus is alive, the God, your life is not an accident, the God who made you, loves you, that you've messed your life up, you know you have, in thought and word and deed, but you can wipe the slate clean and get a fresh start. You can live your life knowing your purpose, knowing your identity, knowing that you're forgiven in relationship with God. Instead of things going in the wrong direction in your family, in your marriage, in your finances, they can turn around and start to go in the right direction because God is on your side, which helps. This is just what we call good news and people want it. And so you guys, over the last 30 years uh, are proof of that. Coming from, I think in 1988, it was nine people with dodgy haircuts. That's not a word of knowledge, that's just a memory of the 1980s. Uh, To now thousands of people in four cities. And I just want to, as someone coming in from outside, honour 
uh, your leaders in a way that uh, perhaps is a little harder for people within the church to do. But uh, Dave and Karen, thank you for the price you paid, not just in public but in private, over decades to serve Jesus with resilience, intelligence, courage, passion and everything else. These are great leaders and uh, you know, you're blessed to have them. And I'm impressed that you're choosing to celebrate 30 years uh, with 30 days of uh, prayer for breakthrough for a couple of reasons. The first reason is this. It is profoundly Christian. You know, Jesus, they reckon, was crucified at the age of 33 at a time where people often only lived to 45. So he was late in life. And he got to 30, and he hadn't really done very much publicly. We don't know much about uh, what Jesus was up to, other than he was a carpenter, and, you know, he'd gone through childhood and adolescence. And and then he gets to 30 and thinks, hang on, I've only got three years left to save the planet. I'd better get busy. And, uh, and, And so he steps out in ministry, and he begins that by getting baptized And then the father speaks this unbelievable word of affirmation over him. Well done. You know, I'm proud of you. This is my boy, which is amazing when he hasn't done anything publicly yet. You know, God's affirmation of you is not related to how much you have or haven't achieved, but it's just because he loves you. He's your father. And so we are launched out of grace, out of affirmation. We don't strive into it, but it's out of the revelation of God's love for you that you do all the stuff that you do. And then Jesus goes into the wilderness, actually not for 30 days, but for 40 days. And in the wilderness, he fasts. Uh, I'm not going to ask who's fasting here. But uh, Jesus, I'm sure, found that his time in the wilderness, praying and fasting, did not feel like heaven. It felt like hell. He was uh, hungry and thirsty, and we know that Satan was tempting him. And then it is out of that season of contesting in the wilderness, prayer and fasting, that we read the Spirit of God came on him in power, and he began his ministry. And over two billion people today are followers of Jesus Christ, because he's alive and he's on the move. But it began with this season of prayer and fasting. So it is profound relevant that as you hit the age of 30, you follow the example of your master Jesus, who at the age of 30 pushed into prayer and fasting in order to launch out in ministry. You have had a hell of a pregnancy over the last 30 years. It's time to be born. It's time to begin your ministry. It's time to really get serious. Amen. You look in the rearview mirror and go, yeah, God's been faithful. Well, take that as the spark that fuels a vast conflagration. If God can do what he has done, what might he do next? And so, you know, we do not pray ex nihilo. We do not pray out of nothing into something. We pray out of the sparks of what God has already done into what he is going to do next. Look around and see the sparks of what God has done in your life and pour petrol on them. You do that by rejoicing, by giving thanks by acknowledging and celebrating them and your faith grows. You don't get faith by clenching your buttocks and trying to believe things you don't really believe. You find them by celebrating the little things God has done and using them to find faith for the big things that he has not done yet. Amen. So look back at the last 30 years. Celebrate with all your might and say, it's been a great start. Let's push in a prayer and fasting and then let's follow the example of Jesus and begin our ministry. Amen. Okay. Some of you thinking, but I'm knackered, I want a break. 
But the other reason I'm thrilled that you're celebrating 30 years with 30 days of prayer is because, as you'd have picked up in the introduction there, I am passionate about prayer. I'm absolutely convinced that prayer is our number one priority as Christians, that God is trying to build his church as a house of prayer for the nations, that you and I are temples of the Holy Spirit. And we read in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit is interceding with groans that words cannot express. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you're filled with the prayer meeting right now. And you're designed, therefore, to take the temple into your workplace, into your street, into your family, to be a person of prayer. We don't just pray to get people saved. We get people saved so that they can pray, so they can walk and talk with God in intimate relationship. And so there's something about prayer that is integral to our calling, our destiny, our identity as the people of God. And um, I'm not going to go into it in great detail. You can re- read the book if, if you're interested to find out more uh, Dirty Glory. But uh, the 24-7 story is that story. Uh, Sammy and I were um, busy planting churches and th- they were going quite well. And that was the problem. We had programs that worked and I suddenly thought, I think these programs might work even if God died. <laughs> How would we know? Uh, and um, something within me way back in the summer of 1999 began to get desperately hungry and thirsty for more of God. I wanted to know him better. I wanted to hear his voice more clearly. Frankly, I wanted to see more miracles and more power. And, and I was frightened of being on some Christian conveyor belt and then getting to the end and saying to Jesus, look at all the stuff I did for you. And he'll say, I didn't really know you. I was tired of outsourcing my prayer life to godly old ladies. I, I, I thought if I hear another story about what God has done in another part of the world or another time in history, I'm going to go crazy. God, do it here. Do it now. And so this, this hunger and thirst grew up within me. Uh, St. Augustine once said, thou hast put salt on our lips that we might thirst for thee. Maybe you're here today with salt on your lips. Maybe suffering or pain or frustration, different things in your life are making you thirsty. Maybe that's why you've come to church today. And that, that what do you do when you're thirsty for God? The only thing you can do is to seek him in uh, prayer. And uh, so we started a non-stop prayer room. At the time, we, were, we weren't getting very many people even at our church prayer meeting. We were probably getting sort of seven old ladies and a goat, you know. And the goat, frankly, was not committed. And, uh, and I, I came back and said to the guys, I think we should pray nonstop for a month. And they said, you must be crazy. Let's build up to this gradually. I said, no, let's just go for it. If we only manage to pray nonstop for a week, it'll still be more praying than we've ever done before. And uh, so we launched on the 5th of September, 1999 just over 19 years ago. And what happened as we set a room aside uh, and as we began to pray in in one-hour shifts in that room was that the Spirit of God came in power. There were angelic visitations. A little girl was healed of uh, leukemia. We had atheists come into the room and say, wow, you can really feel God in here, can't you? And we said, yeah, but you don't believe in God, do you? They said, no. But you can feel him here, can't you? <laughs> yeah. you know? and, and, and all sorts of amazing stuff began to happen. And we just couldn't stop at the end of the month. 
People getting saved one day and literally spending hours in the prayer room the next day, within 24 hours of getting saved. Just getting discipled in the presence of God, reading their Bibles, talking to God. And, that, and we'd be like, wow. I remember a girl called Sam. That was her story. I said, Sam, that's amazing. You've only been a Christian in like 22 hours and you've already spent two hours alone in prayer. And she said, I assume that's what Christians did. So I, I just lied. I said, yeah, that's what we all do all the time. Yeah. And, and then after three months of night and day prayer, in a warehouse down the south coast of England, uh, our mutual friend Jeff Lucas did many shifts in that prayer room. I often remember coming at three in the morning and finding Jeff in there seeking God. And, and, and then uh, uh, after three months, God sneezed and this virus just began to spread. And uh, we thought maybe, wow, we might fill a year with nonstop prayer. And here we are now, we're uh, preparing for our 20th birthday of continual uh, prayer uh, around the world. And it's spread all over the world into more than half the nations on earth. And we're still amazed by the, what God is doing. It must be God, because if you'd come to me and said, I've got a good idea for continual prayer, I'd have said, that's a terrible idea. But something is happening. And as people seek God in prayer, new initiatives are being born, new mission movements being born, churches are getting planted. There's now a network of, of new monastic communities all around the world. And something extraordinary is taking place. Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, came to me a few years ago and he said, I've got this idea. Why don't we um, gather people in cathedrals to seek God at Pentecost? And I said, that sounds good. So we started with five and they were full. St. Paul's Cathedral, Cathedral and so on. They were so full of people coming, not for a concert, not for a great preacher, but just to pray. Actually, at Winchester, we had to put up screens outside because we couldn't fit everyone in the cathedral anymore. Listen, at the uh, cultural, psychological, geographical centre of every centre in Europe is a multi-million pound house of prayer called the cathedral. And it's time that they weren't just tourist attractions, but they were houses of prayer, sites of pilgrimage once again. If we're going to call this continent back to Jesus, it'll begin with the rediscovery of his presence and his reality in prayer. And uh, then the second year, uh, it went even bigger. And then last year was the third year. And we had literally millions, literally millions of people praying uh, all around in cathedrals and other venues uh, in this Thy Kingdom Come initiative. Is that everything that we're wanting? No. But is it something? You'd better believe it. Because every major movement of the Spirit of God throughout history began with a movement of prayer. And right now in the United Kingdom, we are seeing, this is not exaggeration, this is empirical fact, we are seeing the greatest movement of prayer in the United Kingdom right now that any of us, even the oldest here, have seen in our lifetimes. And that includes March for Jesus. It's happening now on our watch. Your 30 days of prayer is part of it. The Spirit of God is calling the church to pray right now. I'm here to tell you that as a fact. That is what's happening. If you're not part of it, you're missing out on the main thing that God is doing right now because out of prayer we see transformation. The hinge of human history is the bended knee. Amen? So I'm thrilled that you're celebrating with 30 days of prayer. Now last week uh, Dave uh, did a masterful job exhorting us to seek the Lord as never before uh, for breakthrough from this uh, story of Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And he reminded us that there, is, there was this great multitude coming against the people of Judah. And Jehoshaphat was scared. Uh, in fact, we read uh, he was afraid and yet he set 
his face to seek the Lord. That's 2 Chronicles 20 verse 3. He set his face to seek the Lord. He resolved to seek the Lord. And uh, he called the people to fast, just as you have been called to fast over these 30 days. And uh, he not only sought the Lord himself, but he went and he stood in the temple and he actually led intercessions. And we're going to pick up uh, the last verse of his recorded prayer there, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. You imagine the scene, Jehoshaphat there in front of the people of Israel in the temple. And uh, at the end of it, a remarkable prayer, verse 12, he says, O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? That's those who are coming against them. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. Now listen to this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. Perhaps you are here at church today or or watching online and you feel like that. You're sensing, I I don't know what to do in my situation. I don't know what to do in my marriage. I, I don't know what to do in my health crisis. I don't know what to do with my finances. I don't know what to do with a particular loved one who's breaking my heart. I don't know what to do with a cycle of addiction in my own life. You're here by the, the skin of your teeth. You're here just clinging on. You're here desperate. I don't know what to do. Well, that is how Jehoshaphat felt. I don't know what to do. And then he says, but our eyes are on you. When you don't know what to do, fix your eyes on the Lord. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Any of you who've had any experience of Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 step program will know that controversially, and millions of people uh, have done the 12 step program, continue to do it. Uh, most famously, Russell Brand's just written a brilliant book all about his experiences of finding freedom through it. But controversially, right at the heart of it, it says, you won't find power in yourself to get free from your problems. But you need to use what they call a higher power. You need to somehow find God outside of yourself to help you. You, you, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to get free. But Fix your eyes on God. You know, uh, you won't find freedom in your addiction by staring at it. But you will find freedom in the God of Exodus, the God of liberation, the God who died to set you free. You, You will not find peace in the storm that you're facing right now. But... You will find peace in the Prince of Peace, in in the one who is Shalom, who's come to reconcile all things together. So focus on him. You won't find healing in the cancer. You will find healing in Jehovah Rapha. One of the names of God is the God who heals. Don't focus on the problem. Focus on the solution. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Uh, You know, People say, I'm, I'm, I'm like into prayer. I'm the prayer guy. I'm not into prayer. I'm into Jesus, and so I talk to him. 
you understand the difference? I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of Jesus. So I ask for his help a lot. You know, I, 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 I've been a pastor for many years, but I don't, I don't really believe in, like, evangelism. In fact, I hate it a lot of the time. But I, I, I believe in Jesus. And so as I believe in Jesus, I find that I get excited about him because he blesses me and he speaks to me and he loves me and he forgives me. And so I talk to him the way you talk to someone and say, you've got to see this movie, it's amazing. You've got to listen to this album, it's incredible. I end up accidentally kind of saying, and do you know what? Hey, Jesus is amazing. And so I do this thing they call evangelism. But I was never someone who said, I want to do evangelism today. I was someone who saw Jesus, so I talk about him. I'm not into social justice. I'm into Jesus, and therefore I find myself picking a fight with his enemies. I'm not into worship. I'm into Jesus, so when I see him, I bow, I sing. The vision is Jesus. The vision isn't religious exercises. Don't get into prayer. Don't get into evangelism. Don't get into worship. Get into Jesus. Amen? I don't know what to do, but I fixed my eyes on you. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And Jehoshaphat effectively says the same thing here. When you don't know what to do, focus on the Father. I remember um, a few years ago now, just after um, I'd finished writing one of, one of the books, and um, I never learned to type. So I, I, I type with these two fingers here. That's it. Those two puppies there. And frankly, that one there is just caps lock, okay? So, and shift. So that one there does all the work. And I, I'd been like typing for weeks, just staring at the screen. My eyes were dried out. My, my children didn't know who I was, you know. And I was exhausted. And then the moment came, I'd finished the book. And I called Sammy and our two sons, who were very little then, to come into my study and one son sat on each knee and we said a prayer over the manuscript. We put our hands together on the mouse and we pressed send. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do next. I'd been fantasizing about this moment of finally stopping writing for ages. Uh, There was a pub just near us that had two vital ingredients, a vast leather couch for me and a playground for the children. Just raise your hand if you think that sounds pretty good right now. Yeah. So we went off there, and I just fell into the embrace of this couch. And I said to our sons, Behold, the Lord has provided. (laughs) Verily, the swings and indeed the slides. Go forth, enjoy, take all the time you want. And I watched, and they sort of ran towards the door. And one of them went straight through the door, and I could see him out the window running towards the swings and the slides. But the other one got to the door, and he stopped, and he watched his brother running towards the swings and slides. And he looked back at me, he looked at his brother, and he walked very slowly back towards me. And I thought, oh, no, he wants the toilet or something. And he came up to me, and he just said these simple words that just sucked the air out of the room. He just looked up at me, and he said, Daddy, I've missed you. And he climbed into my arms, his little podgy arms around my neck, and he and I just kind of breathed together for a long time. And all the time I'm watching his brother on the swings and slides out the window. Now, in that moment, he didn't become more my son than the other one. I didn't start to love him more than the other one. 
but you have no idea how his act of unnecessary devotion ministered to my weary father's heart. The primary invitation of prayer is to push into the arms of the Father, to find their comfort and perspective, fresh intimacy and love. And in this 30-day season, it is an invitation to all of us, and especially those of us saying, I don't know what to do, to push into the arms of God. The greatest breakthrough of these 30 days won't be out there, but it will be in here. Dave reminded us that revival begins with the people of God. It begins in us with our hearts. Joy Dawson once said, anything not born in prayer is born in pride. Wow. God is inviting us to look to him for breakthrough and it begins with us. But there are two particular areas that I believe He's inviting us to pray in in our prayer slots, in our prayer meetings over these 30 days, to to pray for breakthrough in these two areas. And the first is to pray for breakthrough, to look to him for breakthrough in our families, in our families. Verse 13 of 2 Chronicles 20 says, All Judah stood before the Lord, listen to this, with their little ones, their wives and their children. Isn't that beautiful? The whole family came together to pray. I believe the Lord is inviting you in this season to cry out with urgency for your families and with fresh faith. You know that thing Jesus passing through Jericho and Bartimaeus knows this is my moment and he cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. There are times where Jesus is passing particularly close. This is one of them. Don't allow him to pass through the city and miss out with your deepest heart cry. Pray for your families. I was a little challenged a few years ago when I realized that um, my prayers for our own kids had become pretty vague. I mean, I prayed for our sons, but it was sort of... um, you know, God, would you bless them at school today? And, you know, help them not to become Satanists and stuff like that, you know. And I really sense the Lord saying to me, Pete, what are you actually asking me to do? You remember that was Jesus' request to Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, duh, I want to see. Jesus went, oh, okay. Articulate your need. And so, you know, I took a little bit of time to seek God and ask him, what are your promises for our sons? Now, this applies if you don't have your own kids. It applies to all your loved ones. Why did God make them? If they are your kids and he is their father in heaven, then why did he knit them together in their mother's womb? And I spent a day just asking the Lord, God, I'm not going anywhere until you tell me what your call, what your word, what your promises are uh, over our sons. And there were one or two other areas that I wanted to get more specific in prayer. And one of the scriptures, one of the promises I felt God gave me for our sons was this. It says of Jesus, he grew in wisdom, stature and favor with God and with man. Wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. And I really sense that God said, I, I want your sons to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with me and with their friends. 
And so I began to pray, pray a lot more specifically. God, at school today, would you help them to grow in wisdom? Help them to learn stuff, even maths, you know. Uh, would, would, would they grow in spiritual wisdom too? Would they, may they grow in stature? May they do well. May they impress their teachers. May they, may they rise up amongst their peers. But may they also grow in spiritual stature. So I began to pray a lot more specifically because I had this promise from God. And um, it helped me. And it was within just a few days of starting to pray like that that one of our sons at bedtime, it was nine o'clock in the evening, suddenly shouted for Sammy and me, called us upstairs. I must admit, I thought, oh no, he's puked on the carpet. So I ran upstairs and he was sitting bolt upright in bed and he said this, I need Jesus. I, I need to give my life to Jesus. I want to I pray that prayer thing. And so I had the eternal privilege of kneeling by his bed with him and praying with him as he gave his life to Jesus. Now, I must admit, I thought this is a pretty fast answer to this prayer. I'm starting to pray specifically, and, and it's really happening. But let me just season this with the backstory, and then you'll understand this was not coincidence. This was supernatural timing in answer to prayer. The next day, Sammy's sister, who, who's come to know the Lord, but she doesn't really go to church very much at the moment, and you know, she's not exactly sort of you know, massively fired up. She phoned up and she said, what happened with, and she named this particular son last night. And I said, why do you ask? And she said, because I had a dream. She lives about 40 miles away from us. I had a dream last night. I said, tell me about the dream. I didn't give her any information. She said, in the dream, I saw a stranger in your house and he invited you and Sammy into the study. And you went in there and the stranger, and I think it was an angel, said to the two of you, named this son and said, uh, he has been, listen, noticed in heaven, and I've been sent with instructions on how you're to raise him. Now, just raise your hand if you think that would be, that would be helpful right now with raising my teenagers. <laughs> so within days of starting to pray, let him grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with God. He sits up in bed one night and says, I need God. And the very same time, 40 miles away, his aunt has a dream in which an angel is saying he's been noticed in heaven. There is such power when we begin to pray the promises of God. Jesus says, you know, honestly, uh, pray anything in my name. How do we know when we're praying in Jesus' name? Well, find out what he's promised to do. That's a pretty good starter. Find out his words, his promises for your marriage, for your family, for your workplace, your street, for your nation, for your life, and begin to pray those in. Say, let your kingdom come. Let your purpose be fulfilled. And then we know we're praying in line with the will of God. Sometimes we'll have to stack up a few dominoes, keep praying, keep persevering until the breakthrough comes. Finally, secondly, uh, and, and we're going to just pray for some people. I believe the Lord is inviting you to pray for breakthrough, not just in your families, but in your cities, in the nation. To pray some big prayers, not just 
please bless my family, please bring breakthrough here, but let's begin to contend together for Peterborough and for Leicester and for Cambridge and for London and for the United Kingdom because God knows our nation needs Jesus right now. He is mobilizing us to pray. And so there's an invitation to begin to pray with greater authority to get hold of the promises of God for the nation, for your city, for your workplace and pray them in. Pray some unselfish prayers. This is when we move from petition to intercession, praying on behalf of others. The Bible says that we are caught up in a battle against principalities and powers in high, high places. 2 Chronicles 20 verse 15, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel and he said, thus says the Lord, don't be afraid, don't be dismayed at this great horde because the battle is not yours, it is God's. There is a battle. You know that. You experience that. But the battle is God's. Don't be afraid. Fix your eyes on him. And remember the battle is God's. And that means we have to fight spiritually with God in prayer, releasing his purposes. 1 Timothy 2, 2 says when we come together as the church, the first thing we should do is pray for our leaders and those in authority over us. We have spiritual authority as the people of God. The 24-7 prayer movement was inspired by a 100-year prayer meeting that took place in Herrnhut in southeast Germany in the 18th century. The Moravians came together there. They began to pray non-stop. Out of that prayer meeting that went on continually, they launched the great missions movement of the Reformation. One of their converts was a man called John Wesley. And uh, John Wesley took most of his best ideas from the Moravians, and a lot of people know that. His class system came from them. And it was because he was discipled by Count Ludwig Niklaus von Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravians, that on the 31st of December, 1738, in Fetter Lane, London, not far from where uh, Kingsgate, London, is, is going to be meeting, he called together his friends and said, we're going to pray all night to see in the new year. And as they sought God together for breakthrough, and they prayed right through midnight into the 1st of January, 1739, and at three in the morning, Wesley would later record in his journal, his majesty came. The Spirit of God came in such power into that street, just off Fleet Street in central London, at 3 a.m. on the 1st of January, 1739, that those who were present at the prayer meeting were knocked to the ground by the power of the Holy Spirit and they got up and began to travel around preaching the gospel of Jesus and they changed the destiny of this nation. It was the last great awakening that we have seen in this nation and it profoundly changed everything, but it began in a prayer room. As the church began in a prayer room 2,000 years ago, so the great awakening began began in that prayer room on the 1st of January 1739. Before that prayer meeting, the state of the United Kingdom was dire. This is encouraging. If you feel that the nation is a little dire right now, let me tell you, back then they reckoned there were maybe five Christian MPs, but no more. We have way more than that uh, right now. It was so dangerous to go out after dark in many cities in the nation. There was kind of like a mafia that would mug you and knife you. And so people used to have to get armed guards if they wanted to get out overnight. Gin was like this epidemic and there was drunkenness and people just off their faces on the streets in all the major uh, cities. England was a broken 
commonplace. Sexual infidelity had become trendy. Perhaps some of this uh, sounds familiar. The church was in massive decline. They say it was hard to find a church in London where the gospel was even preached. And then John Wesley and his friends, his heart is strangely warmed. He gathers his friends. They begin to pray. And then the Holy Spirit comes, 3 a.m., 1st of January, 1739, and history changes. The hinge of human history, the hinge of this nation is the bended knee. And as they begin to preach the gospel and ordinary people begin to respond to the good news of Jesus, what you've seen over the last 30 years in this church, we find the culture change. Listen, in a democracy, by definition, it changes from the bottom up, not the top down. The laws have to follow on from the will of the people. The most powerful thing you can do is not become prime minister, but to lead your neighbour to Jesus Christ. Because when you change an individual, you change a family tree. When you change a person, you change their workplace, you change their culture and their context. And when When lives change, eventually trickle-up happens and the laws of the land have to follow on. And Wesley saw so many people respond to the gospel that the nation was fundamentally uh, and profoundly changed. As a result of the Great Awakening, you probably know there was prison reform. There was uh, extraordinary new social enterprises throughout the nation. The first lending banks for the poor came out of that awakening. The Sunday school movement that in 1780 there were just 100 uh, children that were being uh, given uh, Bible teaching and literacy by the church. And then by 1831, 25% of children in this nation were being taught by the churches on Sunday. You want to change a nation? Get hold of 25% of the children. We could do it again with preschool clubs, after school clubs, gathering people in, homework clubs. We could do it again. And then of course the abolition of slavery in the British Isles came out of that great awakening. One of the last things John Wesley did was wrote a letter to Wilberforce telling him not to give up in his fight. St. Francis of Assisi, many years before Wesley, turned to God in prayer with such power that Europe was rewritten. And on his deathbed, he said something, and I want to leave you with this. He gathered his friends around him. Francis of Assisi, by his example and his life, had undoubtedly changed the culture of Europe. He gathered his friends around him, and his last words were these, my friends, my brothers, up until now we have done little. Let us begin. And then he died. I believe after 30 years, this is a time for great celebration. But as you contend together in prayer for breakthrough, it's time to begin. It's time to look back and give thanks for all God has done, but then to look ahead and say, now God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done.